How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. This podcast features David M. Rubenstein in conversation with Linda Greenhouse. So we're going to try to cover a lot of subjects today. Why don't we start with Ruth Bader Ginsburg? So in Ruth Bader Ginsburg's case, she obviously became a rock star, maybe the Supreme Court's only rock star in history. What do you think was the reason she became so famous? I think it started happening in the the 2008-2009 period. What happened was uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor retired at the beginning of 2006. That left Ruth Ginsburg as the only woman on the Supreme Court. Justice O'Connor's replacement, uh, Justice Samuel Alito, was much to his right. And so things started changing. Cases that would have gone one way with Sandra O'Connor still on the court went the other way. Justice Ginsburg was getting quite upset. Once uh, Justice John Paul Stevens retired in 2010, she was the senior associate justice on the liberal side of the court. That gave her a certain clout or you know, deference from her fellow liberals on the court. So she started writing dissenting opinions. And she started reading these powerful dissenting opinions from the bench, which is a very symbolic thing for a justice to do. You know, who hears an opinion that's read from the bench? I mean, a couple hundred lucky people are in the courtroom, tourists who happen to stand in line and get in, and the press corps. And I think these oral dissents, as they're called, it's really aimed at the press as a way of saying, hey, people, this is something I really care about. I think the majority took a really wrong turn. So I think it was in 2008, maybe seven, eight, I wrote a page one story for the New York Times. And and I, I, I think I was the first to kind of pull this together. And I said, this was the term when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg found her voice and used it in dissent. And the rock star stuff came about, I think, because we the people needed a voice like that. We needed to think that here was this, you know, slight grandmotherly figure battling her various illnesses who had this powerful voice and could speak truth to power. And it just touched people in a way that I've never seen anything like it in my decades of being around the Supreme Court. Now, I was in the White House uh, during the Carter years, and it was Jimmy Carter who appointed her to the uh, D.C. Court of Appeals. Yes. Was that something that the senators pushed for? Uh, Was it Pat Moynihan, or who was uh, her biggest proponent at the time? Well, as you you may know, when, when Jimmy Carter became president, there had only been eight women on the federal courts in the history of the federal courts, eight. 
and he made it his business to diversify the federal courts. He put women on, he put African-Americans on, and she was an obvious candidate. She was not his first female choice for the D.C. Circuit. That was Pat Wald. But, uh, you know, she was very prominent in legal circles for what she had accomplished in terms of achieving sex equality within the meaning of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause as an advocate. She was teaching at, at Columbia Law School, and Moynihan pushed for her. Other people did, and she became his second female choice for the very powerful D.C. Circuit. Now, some people say that her biggest advocate was actually her husband, that he was you know, doing what he could to help behind the scenes. And did you know her husband very well? I got to know him. Yes, I did. He was a very wonderful guy and um, extremely smart. You know, he had this kind of shtick where, oh, you know, I'm just the one who carries Ruth Bader Ginsburg's bag. But no, he was in his own field, which was tax law. He was number one in the country and saved a lot of people many millions of dollars with the very innovative tax strategies that he came up with and, uh, you, you know, had the self-confidence to be able to play that shtick of, of, of being just her helpmate. But he had a lot of self-confidence and didn't mind saying that he did not make the Harvard Law Review, but his wife did make the Harvard Law Review. So uh, she was a better law school student, I guess. Well, you know, he was, he was quite sick in law school. He had cancer in law school and couldn't attend class. And she was a law student herself. And she would uh, type up the notes. So he was probably in no position. He was just trying to get through. He was in no position to go out for the law review. Um, and, and she was incredibly instrumental in letting him get through law school, I believe. So in a case that we're now reading about a lot more, uh, Roe v. Wade, um, it was said at the time that when she was being considered for the Supreme Court, some women's groups had said, well, they didn't support her because she really didn't like the way Roe v. Wade was written. And Bill Clinton had mentioned initially that he had some concerns that the women's groups weren't supporting her. Uh, but ultimately, he did appoint her. What was her specific concern with Roe v. Wade? So a few months before the Supreme Court vacancy occurred that she ultimately filled, she gave an important lecture at NYU, uh, in which she criticized the court, not for having found a right to abortion, which she fully supported, but for having moved too far in validating the Texas criminal abortion law, which was what Roe against Wade was specifically about. The court wiped off the books every abortion law in the country, some of which were not quite so extreme as the Texas law. And her point was, she thought, if the court had kind of stayed its hand, not, not going all the way as it did, uh, the forces of legislative reform would roll across the landscape and leave the right to abortion in a stronger position, having been democratically achieved through the legislative process. She believed that till the end of her life, she believed that. It actually wasn't true. I, she and I had a couple of conversations about this. Research that I did and my colleague at Yale, Reba Siegel did, showed that in fact, legislative reform had come to a crashing halt before the court ruled because the Catholic Church had gotten very active in blocking it. So her premise was not correct, but that was her belief, and that was the nature of her criticism. 
And she was nominated by President Clinton. Was she confirmed with a big majority or was it close? I think the vote was 97 to 3, if I'm not wrong. So let's talk a few minutes about the court before we go into the elections. So um, there has been talk of a Supreme Court, quote, packing. Now, does the Constitution uh, say how many justices there's supposed to be on the Supreme Court? No, it does not. And um, how many times have we had a different number than nine? The first number was six. We've had as many as 10. It hasn't changed since, I think, the late 19th century. Right. Of course, FDR tried to change it. That's where the phrase court packing comes from. Uh, his frustration that the old guys of the Supreme Court were overturning key parts of the New Deal in the 1930s led him to come up with a so-called court packing plan that was rejected. So the kind of received wisdom from that was, oh, no president's going to try that again. That'll never happen again. That calculus has changed. And, you know, I don't know if it's going to happen again. So uh, to make it clear, uh, if the Congress of the United States wants to change the number of justices on the Supreme Court, they presumably only need a majority in each house. Is that correct? It's not a, uh, something that needs a supermajority. It doesn't need to go to the states. It's no constitutional amendment. Is that right? Just an ordinary piece of legislation, but of course it could be filibustered. So they need more than a simple majority in terms of the processes of, of, of the Senate. The only requirement that forces us to maybe look at this is that uh, judges are appointed and justices for a lifetime tenure. Right now, uh, judges can retire and get senior status full pay when they're 70. Generally, Supreme Court justices have intended to do that. Is it your view that most of the justices that you've known over the years, when they hit 70, they say, look, I'm in good shape, and they really don't like to take a senior status? And why, why do they not take senior status and take life easier? Well, it's a great job, for one thing. And uh, the only one I've personally known, well, I guess I've known two justices who retired early. Potter Stewart retired. I think he was in, only in his late 60s, but he wasn't well, and he only lived a couple of years. David Souter retired at 70 and is alive and well and very happy, as far as I know. But Ruth Ginsburg, for instance, she went on the court at age 60, and she loved the job. And as, as we all know, people started telling her early in the Obama years that she ought to take a bullet for the Democrats and retire and let Obama fill up the seat. And she had no interest in doing that because she loved the job and she was pretty darn good at it. So one of the other proposals that is floating around is to have a constitutional amendment that would say that you can't be a Supreme Court justice after a certain age or something like that. Uh, or to uh, fix the term to a, um, a finite number of years, I think 18 years or something like that. Those things require constitutional amendments. So I think you would say that it's not likely that will happen either? Well, there's a theory that you could do it without a constitutional amendment, but that would be very contested. There's a theory that you could provide that the youngest nine, pick a number of us, nine on the court would constitute the act of Supreme Court but the older ones would still be Supreme Court justices. So it would meet the qualifications of Article Three of the Constitution, that is to say life tenure, but they would only be kind of in reserve. I mean, that's an argument. I, I think most likely it would require an amendment, 
takes a whole long time, as, as we know, and it wouldn't solve the problem that's looming for the Democrats, which is that there would be locked in a six to three conservative majority on the court for years to come in a country where the politics seem to be turning a little bit to the left. So a great divergence there, and that's, um, that, that's the issue. Now, uh, why does the Supreme Court not allow televised hearings uh, right now? I mean, they, they just seem to be completely against that. Do you think that'll change, and why are they against it? They're against it, I think, for kind of privacy reasons, you know? I mean, you probably have the same experience. You, you know, you, you see a Supreme Court justice going about their business. I mean, I once saw Justice O'Connor in the local hardware store or, you know, somebody in a grocery store, and nobody recognizes them because they're not on TV. And that's an astonishing gift that somebody who's among the most powerful people in the country can have, that kind of anonymity. That's what I think they really think. What they say is they feel it would kind of change the dynamic of the intimacy of the argument in the courtroom and so on. Um, so I don't think it's going to happen, maybe in your lifetime or mine. Well, I think maybe they'd like the anonymity to some extent. One time I was at a dinner at the National Gallery of Art and somebody came up to me and uh, introduced himself. And I said, well, I'd like to introduce you to John Roberts. And the person said, well, what do you do? He didn't, <laughs> he didn't, he didn't recognize him. I okay. was on the, on, the, on the plaza of the court this was years ago and Justice White, Justice Byron White was walking by and a tourist went up to him and said, would you mind taking our picture? <laughs> I had no idea that he was a Supreme Court justice. And I'm sure he dined out on that story for years. He loved it. So um, you listened to a lot of oral arguments, I assume, in those 29 years. Uh, do you think oral arguments really make a difference in the, how a case is to be decided? I think they do. And I think justices would tell you that they do. Not so much, oh, you know, I was going to vote to affirm and I heard this argument, now I'm going to vote to reverse. I don't think that happens very often at all because they, they come on the bench very prepared. It, it's what they call a hot bench, which simply means, it's jargon, it means they come having fully learned the cases. Where the argument makes a difference is in uh, maybe the, the, the scope of the ultimate opinion, the, the route that the majority chooses to go down or chooses not to go down. Because what the court is doing, they're not resolving disputes. You know, it's not A versus B and who's going to win. They're making law for the country. And so what they want to know in the oral argument, what they will ask through hypothetical questions, if we buy what you're selling today, what's the next case that inevitably is going to come? What's the next question? And they really want to be satisfied that they're not opening themselves up right. to something they don't want to open. And so it's in that way, a good lawyer can reassure them or a good lawyer on the other side can scare them. Don't do this because this is what you're buying into. And, and that's the way oral argument actually works. Now, um, sometimes people say that the justices are asking questions not so much to get answers from the lawyers, but to make a point for their co-justices to kind of influence them. Do you think that's a fair point? Yes, I think, I think justices would, would admit that because the argument is the, is the first time when all nine of them are focused on that case. 
they haven't discussed it. I mean, they might have discussed it when it came in or they decide this is a case we're going to hear. But at this stage, it, it's a rare thing when for that hour, they're all focused on it so that, you know, Justice A will kind of launch a little trial balloon to see if Justice B is willing to salute for that, you know, or that kind of thing. It's a, it's a subtle but deeply meaningful communication that goes on from one end of the bench to the other. So you presumably watched uh, hundreds of oral arguments at the Supreme Court. Did you see some lawyers that you said, this lawyer is spectacular. I wish I could use him as a lawyer if I had a case in the Supreme Court. And it was said that John Roberts was one of the best advocates in his day. But are there one or two that you would say they're superstar advocates? And were there some that were so bad you were embarrassed for them to be so unprepared? Well, yes to both. You know, a number of the people that I got to see as Solicitor General, which is the top government lawyer arguing in the Supreme Court for the government, uh, Paul Clement was fabulous. Seth Waxman was SG um, under Clinton. He was fabulous. A career lawyer who recently uh, left DOJ after decades, Michael Dreeben, who had uh, the criminal docket. He was fabulous. I could name people. I, I hesitate to name people because I'm going to be leaving out people that I greatly respect at, at the court. In terms of really bad arguments, those tended to be public lawyers, you know, a state attorney general, a politician who, who got elected to be attorney general and the state had a Supreme Court case and he should have given it up to somebody who could actually do a good job, but he needed to have the publicity, that kind of thing. That's when you just kind of, you know, grit your teeth as, as the, the poor politician goes through the motions. And who actually writes the opinions? The justice gets four clerks. I think the chief may get five. But do the clerks write the opinions and the justices review them or the other way around? Well, not all justices are the same and they don't all have the same style. I think it's often the case that the clerk will write an initial draft. Sometimes it's more collaborative than that. Sometimes the justice may write a chunk of it and ask the clerk to integrate that into some longer thing. It, it, it really varies a lot, actually. Why don't we talk about the elections? You were at the Supreme Court, I guess, when Bush v. Gore was decided. Uh, can you tell us what it was like at the Supreme Court then? As a Supreme Court reporter, did you actually think that the case would get to the Supreme Court? And when it got there, were you surprised at how it was handled? And you think it had permanent scars on, on the relationships between the members of the court? So, no, I never thought it would get to the Supreme Court. You know, as people may remember, you woke up the morning after Election Day and you didn't know who won, right? And in fact, let me just sit aside, the day after election was an ordinary court day and I went up to the court and I ran into Chief Justice Rehnquist on the plaza. And we were chatting and I said, isn't it strange that here we are the next morning and we don't know who won the election? He said, yeah, that really is strange. <laughs> Little did I know. So the days went on and we didn't know, we didn't know. And um, a lawsuit was filed on behalf of the Bush campaign claiming various federal causes of action that put the issue within the Supreme Court's uh, jurisdiction. And I remember I looked at that, I thought, this is going nowhere. These people should be sanctioned for filing a frivolous lawsuit. When the court granted the case, I was shocked. I really was. 
the next shocking event was, um, remember there were two cases. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but anyway, the, the one that became Bush against Gore was the second of the two cases. Uh, it was a Saturday. I was at the court. The final appeal from the Bush team had come in. And I got a little heads up from the clerk's office mid-afternoon, don't leave. The New York Times deadline for the Sunday paper was, I believe, three o'clock in the afternoon. Only deadline for Sunday. And then comes this order. The appeal had been granted. The uh, recount that was going on was stayed. It was put on hold. Uh, that was a Saturday. Uh, briefs were going to be due on Monday, and the argument was going to be on Tuesday. I, I think I've got this right. It's the first time in my entire journalistic career that I called the office to tell them what had just happened, that I heard, hold the presses, because the presses had started running. So that was the real shock, that they agreed to hear the case, and there were four dissents from that decision. So you knew that something was afoot that was very, very contentious inside the court. The day after the argument, we knew the court was going to decide the case one way or the other. Why did we know that? Because Congress, by statute, sets a date by which, if the states uh, certify the winning electors by that date, that slate of electors cannot be challenged in Congress when Congress opens the actual electoral ballots. Uh, so that was, I think, December 10th. The court wanted to decide it by then. The clock was ticking. The press room, which is not a very large room, it's maybe about the size of a subway car, was filling up with people, reporters from all over the world, TV crews. And finally, at 10 o'clock at night is when the opinion came down. And some people had a hard time figuring out what was actually decided. Did, it, did you read the opinion that night and, and instantly recognize what had happened? Or Because I, I remember people kind of thumbing through the uh, the opinion, and they couldn't quite figure it out right away. Yeah. Uh, there were many people there who were not accustomed to Supreme Court opinions, A, and B, this was a very unusual opinion. It was called per curiam by the court. It was not signed. So it didn't have what an ordinary Supreme Court opinion has, which is something called a headnote, which is the official summary on the front page of the opinion. So you could look at it and see what the holding is and see what the vote is because it identifies every justice by name. This didn't have that. And so the press office was trying to be helpful knowing it didn't have that. They passed them out and they said, look on page, I forget, look on page 20, look on page 20, look on page 20. What it said on page 20 was uh, the case is, is uh, remanded to the Supreme Court of Florida for further proceedings not inconsistent with this judgment. That is boilerplate. All opinions say that. People misread it, the remand, to say, oh, let's start the recount again. That was just a misreading of it. So there was just huge confusion. I, I was not confused. I mean, it was clear to me, for one thing, even though the procurium was not signed, there were four signed dissents, okay? So nine take away four, five. So we knew it was a five to four opinion. And, um, you know, I jumped in a cab. I read it in a taxi and uh, was able to make the 11 o'clock deadline that uh, the Times had. 
Um, the justices who have left, who were there when Bush v. Gore was decided, any of them ever kind of hinted to you in a private conversation um, that the court was really upset with what they had to do, or any anybody ever leak anything that you can report about what they said after that case? No, I wouldn't call it leaks, but I actually wrote about a month later a, a major piece in the in the Times. It was five or six thousand words, and I did actually interview the majority of the members of the court, all off the record. They didn't tell me as much as I would have liked to have heard, you know, he said this and I said this, not that. But it was clear that it was a, a very sore subject and people were angry, heartbroken, concerned. Uh, Justice O'Connor later, as, as we learn in the Evan Thomas biography of her called First, was of course, she had voted with the majority. She felt after that that she could never accept another White House invitation. Uh, she said to a friend of hers, everybody's going to hate me. Uh, it was a lot of unhappiness and a lot of tension. But, you know, I mean, they're all grown-ups, and they know that nobody can get anything done with the court unless you get four people to go along with you. So it's not like, you know, a kind of a caucus in Congress where you can sort of take your anger to the cloakroom and sort of hang out or something. You've got to get back to work if you're going to be effective at all. So they did. They, you know, hitched up the trousers and uh, got back to work and found coalitions across party lines in those days. And, um, you know, they, they did get over it eventually. Let's talk about this election. To review for everybody, when the Founding Fathers created the Constitution, they had three different ways of getting people elected. House members were voted by people voting directly. Senators were voted in by the state legislatures. And then presidents were elected by the Electoral College. The Constitution was changed to allow the uh, people to vote for the senators, so that's now the same as the House. The initial way that Constitution had the uh, presidential election was you were supposed to pick your two favorite candidates. And the first person who got the most votes would be president, and whoever got the second most would be vice president. And that didn't work so well, um, I guess, and it was changed. So I think when Adams was not elected and, and Jefferson beat him, um, ultimately, for a lot of complicated reasons, Aaron Burr got the same number of votes as Jefferson, so they had to go to the House of Representatives to break the tie. The law has now since been changed, and the Constitutional Amendment, the 12th Amendment, and so forth. But the current law, if I understand it correctly, is that it works this way. When the electors in each state send their decision to the Congress to officially tabulate it, it's tabulated by the Senate. Is that correct? I think that's right, yes. And the presided, vice presided over by the vice president, who's the presiding officer of the Senate. Right. And so there's been cases where Richard Nixon uh, was then in the counting when he lost to John Kennedy, and Al Gore was doing the counting when he lost to George W. Bush. So, you know, a, a little thing that the founding fathers might not have anticipated happening. But let's suppose what happens is that there are not a majority for, um, let's say, either candidate this time. And let's say there aren't a, a majority for electors. Does it go to the House of Representatives? Yes. Um, there, there's a very good little book by uh, a, a professor named Lawrence Douglas from Amherst called Will He Go? Trump in the looming election meltdown of 2020. And what he points out there is that the law that Congress passed 
after the uh, chaotic and almost failed election of 1876, the uh, Hayes-Tilden election, uh, something called the Electoral Count Act that is supposed to regularize what would happen if there were these various kinds of scenarios. But as Professor Douglas points out in this book, and this was news to me, the law has all kinds of gaps in it. For instance, let's suppose in some of the swing states, there's a Democratic governor and there's a Republican-controlled legislature. And you've got a vote. Let's just say, for instance, it's a vote that goes for Trump. But then you've got what they call the blue shift. You've got the absentee or mailed-in ballots that start getting counted and so on. And lo and behold, it's shifting. And Trump is claiming, you know, I won on November 3rd and I won. And it's clear that things are happening otherwise. So what would happen if you had two sets of electors transmitted to the Congress, one the governor's choice of electors and the other, the legislature's choice of electors. So the Electoral Count Act provides that the House shall count only that slate of electors who have been, quote, regularly chosen. Well, what does that mean? What's regular in a situation that would be totally irregular? We don't know. We don't have the answer to that. So that's actually the, I think, the biggest nightmare for people that have kind of thought this through. So um, you also uh, wrote in your article in the New York Times that there are certain secret documents that might, might exist about what happens if there's an emergency, uh, things like suspending habeas corpus and so forth. Can you explain what you were referring to? Yeah, so um, there have been a few studies. Um, the Brennan Center at NYU has done a major one indicating that there are some dozens of highly, highly classified documents that specify presidential powers under various scenarios. And there's a bipartisan group of sort of elder statesmen, um, a couple of former senators and some former Republican cabinet officers who are very concerned about this and would like to bring it to public attention. They don't have the goods. It's not that you know, when I, I spoke to some of them and, and when I said, well, like, what are these documents that they don't know, but they would like Congress to hold hearings and, and kind of flesh this out because the sort of takeaway is that, and from uh, Professor Douglas's book also, is that our democracy is sustained by norms, by norms of behavior, much more than by written rules. We just assume that things are going to be done in a way that sustains rather than undermines right. our democratic system. And this whole kind of secret netherworld of presidential authority seems to be something that's quite problematic. And I've just told you all I know about it. And I think the people I spoke to told me all they know about it. And it's just a big mystery. Now, the Supreme Court is probably among the most respected institutions in the United States. And uh, why do you think the Supreme Court is so well-respected by the American people compared to, let's say, Congress? Well, I think it's, it's been well-respected because it has been seen as an organ of government that's outside of politics. It's doing something other than making political decisions. My concern in these last couple of years has been, you know, that really can't be sustained if it appears to the public that the court is just voting 
political preferences. And what's a danger zone for the court is that this is really the first time in certainly in modern American history where there's no crossover on the court. All the conservative justices were placed there by Republican presidents. All the liberal justices were placed there by Democratic presidents. There's no longer, a, for instance, a David Souter, who was named by a Republican president, became quite liberal, a Justice John Paul Stevens, a Justice Harry Blackman, and so on. So people look at this, you know, they look at a court that upholds the Muslim travel ban, for instance, and it's five to four in that way, and this kind of thing. So I think that Chief Justice Roberts has been very concerned about this. So I think if the court just simply follows party agendas, it will be deeply, deeply damaged. So let's suppose we have the election and it's uncertain and we describe the constitutional process and the uh, statutory process by which it's supposed to be decided. But presumably after Bush v. Gore, one side will rush into the judiciary system and try to get to the Supreme Court, I assume. So do you think the Supreme Court would have the credibility and have the interest in resolving this matter yet again? Or do you think they'd say, look, we'll leave it up to Congress. We're not getting in this anymore. I think there would be a strong institutional imperative to stay out. Uh, now, of course, it depends at the, the, the phase of the controversy that would engender the case that would get to the Supreme Court. You know, you could make a case that in the Florida situation in Bush against Gore, something was going on that was within the court's jurisdiction to resolve the equal protection claim. I mean, I don't, I don't think the court should have taken it, but I, I w wouldn't argue that it was within the court's jurisdiction. Once the dispute is actually in Congress as a body, in the House, and the House is melting down over it, you can make a very strong case that it's not within the court's jurisdiction. It's the paradigmatic political question. And the court would have, you know, really couldn't get into it. So it, it's, it's all very contingent on exactly what kind of dispute would arise. Linda, I want to thank you for a very interesting conversation. And we appreciate your taking us through the election, the Supreme Court, and so many other issues we're able to cover. Thank you. Thank you, David. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.